I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 21st. Coming up, a prominent medical journal has just reported that low-carb diets shorten your lifespan. We'll get a second opinion from a medical doctor named Ron Rosedale. And then a look at Down syndrome. What causes the health problems that accompany Down syndrome? Research from the CU School of Medicine points to an out-of-balance immune system. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. You can get hit by one tennis ball and definitely notice it. But how much do you notice each individual hit of a photon of sunlight as you are pummeled by a billion, billion of them every second? The push you feel when something hits you is due to what's called the transfer of momentum. And as you might guess, the transfer of momentum of a single photon is extremely subtle. And it involves studying how the electromagnetic wave of light interacts with the thing that gets hit. Researchers at the University of British Columbia have just released an analysis this week in the journal Nature Communications. In their analysis, they use special detectors that can measure the ripples that light makes when it hits them, like infinitesimal ripples on a pond. Understanding this very small transfer of momentum could have a big impact on space travel. If you constantly push something with light over a long period of time, you could eventually accelerate an object to near the speed of light. That's the concept behind what is called a light sail, or a solar sail, if it uses sunlight. The results of this study to measure this subtle photon push might someday help build spaceships to fly far beyond our solar system and visit other stars. And if you want some stars that you can visit while you're still at home on planet Earth, Boulder's Summers Bausch Observatory holds stargazing open houses on Friday evenings starting at 8pm. Astronomy graduate student volunteers help visitors gaze through high-powered telescopes while everyone is bathed in a low-frequency soft red glow that helps your eyes stay attuned to starlight. Summers Bausch open houses are only held when the skies are clear. So before you come, check the weather. You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Last week, the medical journal The Lancet published a new study about diet and longevity. According to most news reports, the study indicates that the best way to live a long life is to eat little over half your calories as carbohydrates. You know, bread, pasta, potatoes, fruit, rice, and starchy vegetables. According to the study, people most likely to die early eat either more than 70% of their calories as carbs or they eat a low-carb diet, meaning less than 40% of daily calories coming from carbs. The study has been hailed as proof that eating carbs in moderation is the best idea. But, according to medical doctor Ron Rosedale, there are a few holes in that study, so you just might want a second opinion. For more, here's Shelley Schlender talking with Dr. Ron Rosedale. Ron Rosedale, what is it about your background that means that you can be somebody who speaks to the idea of low-carb diets and longevity? For the vast majority of my professional career, that's what I've been studying. 
I believe at least in the U.S., I was the first person to actually recommend and utilize a, a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet to treat a multitude of the chronic diseases of aging. And my interest has been in the dietary connection to the hormones and pathways that influence, if not regulate, the biology of aging. That's really what one has to look at if one is going to evaluate the health of any particular dietary or interventional regime is how does it affect aging and mortality. Here is a study from The Lancet, the journal Lancet, about just that topic. That longevity study seems to show that people who eat a low-carbohydrate diet die sooner than people who eat a moderate-carbohydrate diet. Well, first of all, had they stuck to the title of the study where it's different amounts of carbohydrate versus mortality, if they had not used later in the study the word low-carbohydrate, it would have been a better study because they didn't study a low-carbohydrate diet. <laughs> and so here they are then making conclusions about a low-carbohydrate diet, which is then you know, picked up everywhere about low-carbohydrate diets, and they didn't study a low-carbohydrate diet, not at all. In the Lancet study, the amount of low-carbohydrate that they were looking at was 40% or less. You just say that that's not a low-carbohydrate diet? I think, yeah, the lowest was like 37% or something. Uh, no, that's not low-carbohydrate at all. In fact, that's probably the worst diet, and that's what their studies showed. I think the worst diet, and I've been saying this for a quarter century, is one where you mix kind of an equal amount of carbohydrate and fat. Carbohydrates turn to sugar, the sugar goes up, it raises insulin, and you can't burn fat. If you summarize all of nutritional science, you can do it in a single sentence. And that is that one's health and lifespan is going to be more determined by the proportion of fat versus sugar that they burn over a lifetime than anything else. The key is to burn fat. And if you eat 40%, 37% carbohydrates, you will not be able to burn fat. That's why people are getting so fat. People get fat not because they eat fat, but because they can't burn it. Why can't people burn fat if they're eating carbohydrates with it? What stops them from burning the fat? We knew a quarter of a century ago that when you raise insulin, it prevents the burning of fat. And so when you eat carbohydrates, it turns to glucose, you raise insulin, and you can't burn fat. You also raise leptin. You also raise an uh, even more critical pathway called the target of rapamycin that hardly anybody knows about right now. All of these conspire to make a person store fat and not burn it. And that's where you can run into higher mortality. And this is what the study found. So what, what this study really showed was that a diet that consists of a medium fat and medium carbohydrate that will be unhealthy. In the, the so-called low carbohydrate group that they call in this paper, it's about 37, 38% carbohydrate. It's virtually exactly the same as the amount of fat. So their conclusion was that a, uh, a low carbohydrate diet, which wasn't a low carbohydrate diet, but they called it a low carbohydrate diet, uh, led to an increase in mortality. But it was the same amount as the amount of fat. So they could just as easily have said that a low-fat diet leads to higher mortality. If 37% is not a low-carb diet, what is? You'd have to get down to about 15%, so considerably lower than what they were testing. George Cahill at Harvard showed this. If you don't get down that low, you're not going to efficiently burn fat. You're really not going to burn fat as you're 
primary fuel unless you get down that far. And the reason for that is for the reason we stated about the effects on hormones. So you really have to get down that far. A major problem with this study is that it was an epidemiologic study. It was a population study. In this particular study, it was a questionnaire. Many, many, many studies have shown that when you ask people what they've eaten, especially when they have to reflect on it. In other words, if they don't keep an actual food diary, and even then when they do, if you ask a question, what did you eat last week? What did you eat yesterday? They're notoriously wrong. And you can speculate as to why they're wrong. Many people feel guilty, for instance, if they ate two milkshakes yesterday and french fries, they're not going to report that. They might report, well, I ate a milkshake. They didn't report that they ate two milkshakes. There's kind of a guilt, and especially when it pertains to higher fat. Fat has been so vilified that people are just reluctant. Food questionnaires are fraught with inaccuracies. So that's another problem with this study. With epidemiologic study, there's a lot of confounding variables. And in this, there's at least one major one, ferritin and iron. Iron is very bad for a person if it accumulates. We know that iron rusts, for instance, and it actually literally rusts inside your body too. And it's kind of rust the lining of your arteries and kind of burn the lining of your arteries. It stores in tissues such as the pancreas. And so ferritin is also very highly correlated with mortality, with death. What is there in diet that tends to lead to higher iron levels, high ferritin levels? Really about the only food that shoot up ferritin levels and iron levels is red meat. People who eat a high red meat diet have to really measure their ferritin. It's just rarely done. There's no money in it for anybody. There's no drugs that really lower your ferritin. And so it's not paid attention to. But it's a really simple variable that can be accounted for. You know, in this study, in a way, it seems as though they might have accounted for it because the study conclusions did point out that people who got their protein from plant-based sources tended to live significantly longer than people who got their protein from animal-based sources. And a lot of animal-based protein comes from red meat, which contains ferritin. Right. But they didn't measure ferritin and they didn't compensate for that ferritin when they came to their mortality conclusion. The other major confounding variable that was not accounted for had to do with the pathway called the target of rapamycin. That's a newer pathway that is now extensively being studied. It's a pathway that now has been attributed to the longevity and health benefits of calorie restriction diets, for instance. So it's an extremely important pathway. It's a very ancient pathway. It regulates almost, you know, all life metabolism. The mTOR pathway is influenced by all sorts of different nutritional inputs, just the amount of energy, amount of ATP, which is kind of a energy battery, insulin, leptin, but it's also influenced by specific nutrients. And the most powerful stimulant of TOR is protein. And of protein, the most powerful stimulants are the branch chain amino acids, and particularly something called leucine that is found much higher in animal protein. Plant proteins are deficient in many essential amino acids. The relevance here is that plant proteins then don't elevate the target of rapamycin near as much as animal proteins. Is that good or bad? Is it good or bad to have TOR elevated or is it better to have TOR be lower? Basically, after middle age, elevated TOR starts causing lots of problems. It increases risk of cancer, increases risk of mortality. What I'm hearing you say is that if someone is eating a lot of protein after middle age, they increase the likelihood that their TOR levels will be high 
And if somebody wants longevity, they might want to have moderate but not too much protein, less than most Americans eat, in order to give them a better chance at longevity. That's exactly correct. But in this study, what is particularly relevant is you can eat more plant protein for the exact reason that it's a lower quality protein. It's less usable. And so you can eat more of it because eating more plant protein is like eating less animal protein. They could have just measured the amount of leucine. It's actually quite easy to measure in there. Rather than saying that animal protein leads to higher mortality, they could have just said that too much branch chain amino acids will lead to higher mortality, and that's probably true. In other words, it's not the fact that it was an animal or a plant. It's the fact that you had more usable protein. And people in the United States tend to eat an excess amount of protein compared to what their body actually needs. Exactly. And that will lead to higher mortality. Walter Willett's group, and I like Walter Willett. He's done a lot of great papers, but this, I think, was not his greatest hour. You know, Einstein once said that you want to keep things as simple as possible, but not too simple. And you don't want to keep things too simple because it will make it wrong. And what they did in this study is they kept things too simple. You can't just measure the amount of carbohydrate and compare it to everything else. Ron Rosedale, are you concerned that this kind of study and the way that it's been reported, where the report has been that you live longer if you eat over half your calories as carbohydrates, that that may scare a lot of people into avoiding trying a low, very low-carb, high-fat diet. Yes, and I am very concerned. I think that papers such as this are extremely dangerous because diet is so important to a person's health. I mean, everybody's heard that, you know, yeah, what they eat is important. People don't understand how important it is. By influencing diet in laboratory animals, you affect the rate that they age. I mean, that's huge. You affect the most important pathways in the body that regulate cardiovascular disease and cancer, such as the TOR pathway. What you eat is extremely important. People, authors such as this, have to show greater responsibility. And I think even the, the journal, and The Lancet is a very prestigious journal, but I think that uh, because of who the group was and because Walter Willett has published good papers in the past, that they get more leeway in publishing Really what I would call, and unfortunately, junk science such as this. Thanks to Shelley for that interview. Ron Rosedale is a medical doctor who specializes in metabolism and in aging-related diseases. He actually advocates a 70% fat, 15% carbs, and 15% protein diet. We'll post an extended interview of this talk on our website, howonearthradio.org. You are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Maeve Conran. In the United States, one in every 700 children is born with Down syndrome. That's a genetic condition where chromosome 21 ends up with three copies 
rather than the usual two. Common traits of Down syndrome include low muscle tone, small stature and developmental delays, plus an increased risk of some diseases and a decreased risk of others. Often Down syndrome is explained simply as a genetic disorder. But inside of cells, what does this genetic mutation change? Research at CU Denver has revealed surprising results using a protein analysis tool created by Boulder's Somalogic Incorporated. Scientists analysed thousands of the proteins that our human bodies make. They discovered that what's different in people with Down syndrome involves not a gene for height or for how to take a test, it's an out-of-balance immune system. For more, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talking with CU Denver scientist Joaquin Espinosa. Yeah, I'm Joaquin Espinosa. I'm a professor of pharmacology at the University of Colorado, Anschutz Medical Campus, and also the executive director of the Linda Cernick Institute for Down Syndrome. Now, Joaquin, in your lab, you work on cancer and Down syndrome. Correct. I have two research teams. One of them is focused on cancer research, one of them on Down syndrome. But as we may be able to talk later, there are connections between um, these two conditions. Do you know some people with Down syndrome? I do. What are they like? Oh, they're fascinating. First of all, you're not two people are the same with or without Down syndrome. So I don't want to generalize about people with Down syndrome. But there are some patterns, some qualities that are common among people with Down syndrome. They are very kind. They're very accepting, very loving. So they're really a great presence, you know. Yes, I've heard that many times that people with Down syndrome, there's a way that in their presence, they remind all of us of some of the most magical and special parts of being alive and being with other people. Yes, they have a joy of life. They are also very emotionally intelligent. I think they can perceive even ahead of yourself, your emotional state, they can sense if you're stressed or if you're happy and they can, you know, interact in that way with you, reading you at the emotional level very well. And at the same time, people with Down syndrome are, by the age of 40, most of them will have Alzheimer's disease. By the age of 40, most of them will have some kind of serious autoimmune disorder. And they're also very prone to infectious diseases and they're prone to some kinds of cancers, but not others. Yeah, let me elaborate a little bit on that. The Alzheimer's piece, first of all, yes, people with Down syndrome are the largest population with a genetic predisposition to early onset Alzheimer's disease. And by the age of 40, most of them have the signs of the pathology in the brain, but not necessarily the dementia, the true manifestation of the disease. It may take another 20 years or so for the dementia to develop, and there's a lot of viability. And some of them, despite the fact that they have the brain pathology, do not become demented until their 70s. So studying people with Down syndrome can really reveal how to modulate the progression of Alzheimer's disease. It is also true that people with Down syndrome are highly predisposed to autoimmune conditions. Not all of them. Things like Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, when the immune system attacks the thyroid gland, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, so a whole range of conditions. The cancer connection is fascinating. On one hand, they are protected from most solid malignancies. And what I mean by this, these are tumors of solid tissues like breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, living cancer, much reduced rates of those. On the other hand, 
they have high rates of leukemias, the malignancies of the blood cells. So there is something very interesting going on there. They get some kinds of cancers, they don't get other kinds, and it's consistent. They're more prone to the placking of Alzheimer's disease, though some may not show signs of dementia till a later age. They are definitely more prone to autoimmune diseases. Now, you did a study that involved a extensive look at proteins and how proteins express in the bodies of people with the genetic condition we call Down syndrome. What is special about a protein study? Why would you study proteins? So we did two studies, and they're related. One was looking at the proteins in the blood. Let me remind you that our genetic information goes from DNA, which is packaged in our chromosomes. It produces a molecule called RNA, and then that RNA then becomes translated into proteins. So more or less for every gene in the human genome, and there are like 20,000 genes, you would find a protein somewhere or another in the body. So if you want to study the genetic information, the genetic makeup of an individual or you know any organism, looking at collections of proteins could be very informative. So Joaquin Espinosa, in studying proteins, do proteins do all of the jobs in the body? Not all of them, but many, if not most of them. So by studying proteins in the body, you can get some ideas of what kind of jobs is the body doing. What kind of jobs might it be doing too much, and what kind of jobs might it be doing too little? Correct. So you studied the proteins between people with Down syndrome and also people who don't have Down syndrome. Where were the variations? We look at almost 5,000 proteins in the blood of people with and without Down syndrome, and we find about 300 that were very different, meaning they were significantly elevated or significantly depleted in people with Down syndrome. And about half of those proteins had to do with the immune system. The immune system, is that what people have normally thought is the area of a person with Down syndrome that is different from other people? It was noted here and there in the literature that people with Down syndrome have differences in the immune system, but nobody had done this unbiased analysis of thousands of proteins that would place the immune system at the top of the charts, as the top category of what is different in people with Down syndrome. And yet people, when they think about Down syndrome, think about somebody who doesn't do as well on tests at school, yet it's the immune system that you found is different. Correct. And everything that we talked about, the different disease spectrum, people with Down syndrome having more Alzheimer's, less tumors, more leukemia, but also the cognitive aspects, all of it could potentially be explained by these differences in the immune system. Let me elaborate a little bit on the role of the immune system in the brain, since you brought that up. Yes, people with Down syndrome have cognitive differences. About 15% of the cells in our brains are immune cells. They are called the microglia. These are cells that are sitting there in our brains to protect the neurons and other cells in the brain from infections. The microglia, the immune cells of the brain, become hyperactive. They produce toxic compounds that will basically poison your brain. So even the cognitive aspects of Down syndrome could be explained by a hyperactivation of the immune system. All right. And you just said hyperactivation, meaning that from what you looked at, it looks like the immune system is working too hard, working so hard, it's doing some wrong things in people with Down syndrome. Correct. The immune system has many branches. It's not the same branch of the immune system that we used to fight off a virus than it is to fight off a bacteria infection. 
So what we are seeing is a particular aspect of the immune system involved in the viral defense, in the tumor defense, called the interferon response, because it interferes with viral replication. That is hyperactive. But when you're doing too much of something, even if it is a good thing, of course you can see exhaustion and you can see a wearing out eventually of the system. So we like to say that the immune system of people with Down syndrome is dysregulated meaning is out of balance. Do you mean that there's too many of these kinds of cells doing things or that the ones that are doing them are exhausted and they're working too hard trying to do things that they really don't need to be so worried about? We see both. Okay. We see some type of immune cells that people with syndrome have more of and they are more active. For example, the cells that are involved in fighting off tumors. Now, the cells that are involved in fighting off tumors are the same cells that could cause autoimmunity. Because rather than attacking a tumor, they start attacking a healthy tissue. There you go. You have an autoimmune disease. And that means that the cell started out, we hope, fighting something that needed to be fought in the body. But then it got confused. And it said, well, this other cell looks a little bit like the cell I was fighting. So maybe I should fight it too. And it happens to be a cell that's part of our body that it's fighting now. Correct. When the vigilantes in your body you know, are hyperactive, the chances of making a mistake increase. And that's what we're seeing. But there are also other aspects of the immune system that are depleted, right? The immune system is out of balance. Some parts are too active, some parts are weakened. In the case of somebody with Down syndrome, your research indicates that they may have too much attacking of the body cells that are kind of similar to viruses. But on the other hand, if somebody gets a bacterial infection, if they have Down syndrome, they're much more prone to get really sick from it. Absolutely correct. The antibacterial defenses in people with Down syndrome are diminished. In fact, bacterial pneumonia of the lung, you know, lung pneumonia, is the top cause of mortality among people with Down syndrome. A few people know that. So this is a main concern for us and a, an area of intensive research. How can we normalize the immune system so that we tone down the aspects that are hyperactive and at the same time we build up the antibacterial defenses that may help these individuals fight off the pneumonia. Well, how about using some of the standard immunotherapies such as using a steroid drug to just suppress the whole immune system? Steroid drugs will not produce the type of rebalancing that we would like to achieve. But there are other approved drugs used for some auto-inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, these drugs are called JAK inhibitors, which we think will do a better job than just a corticosteroid. So we are testing these drugs in animal models of Down syndrome. We have mouse models of Down syndrome, that is mice that have an extra chromosome, just like people with Down syndrome do. But also we know now of some individuals with Down syndrome that have taken these drugs for some of the autoimmune conditions and they're seeing benefits. So we're also planning on eventually doing the proper clinical trial to test these immune therapies that could bring back the immune system to a state of balance. Joaquin Espinosa is Professor of Pharmacology at CU Denver, who studies cancer and Down's syndrome. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that interview. And we'll post an extended version on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. 
This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and engineered by me, Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Joe Scott and Hannah Alkire. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran.